0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom.
1: Terms apply. This is the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of personal triumph for herself, and especially for women, whom she fought for both before the court as an advocate and as a Supreme Court justice. As with any figure who takes strong stands, she had vast armies of support and opposition, even as she managed to keep close friendships among people on both sides. Her replacement could change the course of American law for decades. We'll hear about all of this as well as hear from Ginsburg herself in this hour, but let's start with the immediate aftermath of her passing. Jonathan Turley is one of America's most influential and interesting legal scholars, influential because he often testifies before Congress in some of our most important legal and legislative battles, and interesting because in trying to track him either as a fervent conservative or liberal, it's just impossible to do so. From the movie, what do you say about a legal scholar who testified at the Trump impeachment trial and ended up being quoted by both sides? Jonathan Turley is chair of Public Interest Law, George Washington University, and a CBS News analyst. Jonathan, good to talk to you. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg first, before we get into everything we might be facing now. Was she just an outsized personality, or did she have a major influence on the court, both as a justice and before that, arguing cases before it? Well, she had some very
0: significant cases, and actually, I think perhaps her most- powerful opinion was actually a dissent uh, in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, uh, which dealt with the partial birth abortion ban. One of the reasons she has left such a significant uh, legacy is that she's one of the, those justices that didn't change on the court. You know, there are many justices that came on the court as a conservative, left a liberal, and vice versa. You know, Justice White was viewed as a liberal. He left as a staunch conservative. Uh, Justice Souter uh, was brought on as conservative and left as as a liberal, or at least perceived as liberal on the court. When when um, Ginsburg came to the court, she had a sense of a north star where she wanted to take her jurisprudence and the country. And she's possibly the most consistent vote on the modern court. She is the common denominator in a long line of five four decisions. And that's the reason why her replacement with someone who might be as consistent on the right would have such a transformative impact. I think that if President Trump succeeds in replacing Justice Ginsburg with a conservative, it would constitute the most consequential and transformative uh, confirmation in the court's history.
1: Whatever one thinks politically of picking a Supreme Court justice under these circumstances. Is there any question of its legality?
0: No, it's this is perfectly constitutional. You know, I, I just had a, a difference with the New York Times on this, because the New York Times reported that there were 16 election year uh, cases. I actually think that's off by about half. There's actually been around 30 nominations made within a year of the election, not the calendar year, but within a year of the election. Uh, And so most presidents have indeed filled vacancies when they have arisen uh, within a year of the election. And of course, the hypocrisy coming down from Capitol Hill is a virtual tsunami. I mean, both parties have completely reversed their positions. You know, the Democrats are perfectly right in calling out Republicans who said that they that it was entirely inappropriate to move Merrick Garland so close to an election. But the Democrats also have to acknowledge that every Democratic senator uh, at that time said it was appropriate and it was loony not to do it. Uh, Justice Ginsburg herself said that this is the job of the Senate. And in 2016 said that the Senate should fill the seat. Uh, Justice Sotomayor said at that time that eight is a terrible number for a court and Congress should get the court back up to nine members.
1: So is the timetable a problem here with senators wanting to be out running for re-election? There are some of them, a lot of them are in fairly tight races, and of course, a couple of holiday recesses.
0: Yeah, and this goes again to the issue, and you you stated, I think, the question uh, correctly. This is perfectly constitutional, and in fact, presidents have done this in the past, but that doesn't mean that it's right. You know, senators could very well vote against this nomination based on the timing. There is certainly a good faith reason to say presidents should not do this this close to an election. Uh, so the, the senators can make decide their vote any way they, they want. But addressing your last question, this is an unknown in an election that was already quite chaotic, uh, you know, how this is going to play out in the elections, uh, people are still grappling with. We saw how powerful Kavanaugh was, and it was not just as a benefit to the Democrats. There were Republicans that picked up percentage points uh, over the fight on on Kavanaugh. So how this plays out is a good question. Now, in terms of scheduling, uh, that's gonna be a particular problem for Kamala Harris, because she is a member of the Judiciary Committee. So when she really wants to be out there campaigning, she may be tethered to the hearing. And so the Republicans could extend this hearing as long as they want. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the Republicans that will control the schedule. They can make this as short uh, or as, as long as they, as they want. Now, John Paul Stevens was confirmed in 19 days. It was a NASCAR pace of a confirmation. Uh, Justice Ginsburg herself was confirmed in roughly 40 days. So it is certainly possible to do this in a relatively fast fashion.
1: Let's talk about this idea that is being floated among many Democrats about packing the court. In other words, okay, if we're going to lose this, if Democrats get the Senate, they say, and we have a Democratic president for the United States, then they say, well, look, there's nothing in the Constitution about how many justices there are on the Supreme Court, so we could add justices. We've had as few as five, as many as 10, but it's been nine since 1869. The Constitution lets Congress set the number, and, and it's been done politically, too. Congress reduced the number of justices from 10 to 7 in 1866 just to stop President Andrew Johnson from appointing any, and as soon as he has gone, they went back to nine. So is this a real possibility constitutionally, and then of course in terms of political reality?
0: It certainly is. Uh, I've gotten a lot of calls on this because about 25 years ago, I put forward a detailed plan for the expansion of the Supreme Court. And that followed a study where I concluded that our, our court is demonstrably and dysfunctionally too small. We have one of the smallest courts of a major nation. And most of these other nations have larger courts precisely to avoid the problem that have plagued us ever since we went to nine members. And that is a court of one, a single swing justice, effectively controlling uh, the laws in the United States. Most other countries have larger courts and they have less of that problem. But this is not that plan. Over the weekend, I, I, I ran a column in USA Today trying to point that out, that my plan is designed to avoid court packing. It's not a court packing plan. It's a, it's a court reforming plan. Uh, it takes 20 years to get to the full uh, um, court size. And I was suggesting either 17 or 19 based on that earlier study. And there's two options as to which one you want. There's a reason for the two justices that are, are added uh, to the second plan. But it takes 20, 18 to 20 years to get there. What the Democrats are suggesting is just a raw muscle play, and it's wrong. It is doing it in the wrong way and doing it for the wrong reason. It is basically FDR's court-packing plan, and that plan was really abusive. It was also sort of moronic. You know, the FDR was suggesting that he could add up the six justices for every justice who was 70 years old and a half. Well, that was specifically the profile of the so-called four horsemen on the court that had been blocking the New Deal, deal le- legislation. So the FDR plan was an, a, just a truly horrible uh, idea and, and its purpose was simply to muscle through a majority. Uh, I think this is very troubling. Uh, I don't think the way you honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg is to destroy the institution
1: that she loved. Fascinating times. Jonathan Turley is the Chair of Public Interest Law at George Washington University and, of course, a CBS News Analyst. Jonathan, thank you so much for spending the time with us.
0: Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you.
1: You're listening to The Life and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Bill Gross. Let's talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Betsy West, who is an award-winning filmmaker, journalist, and educator, a producer, and executive for a couple of decades at ABC News, winning 21 Emmy Awards and two DuPont Columbia Awards for work on Nightline and Primetime Live, and then at CBS, where she oversaw 60 Minutes and 48 Hours. The reason why we're talking with her now, though, is that Betsy was co-director and co-producer with Julie Cohen of the documentary RBG, which became a surprise critical and box office hit in 2018. Betsy, good to talk with you.
2: Nice to talk to you, Gil.
1: You had incredible access to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't remember anyone having that kind of access to a sitting Supreme Court justice before.
2: Well, it happened kind of gradually. When Julie and I initially approached Justice Ginsburg uh, in 2015 to make a documentary about her life, her initial response was not yet. Uh, But we realized not yet wasn't no. So we went back at her with a list of people that we thought we might be interviewing, her former colleagues and uh, family and friends. She came back and a couple months later and she said, well, uh, I wouldn't be able to talk to you for at least two years, but uh, if you are going to be interviewing people, you might want to consider. And then she suggested three people. So that opened the door. And from there, we kind of wormed our way in and you know, started talking to people about her, eventually filming some of her events that she does at law schools. And then we did gain access to her, uh, you know, in her office and at home in the gym and actually uh, in Santa Fe, going with her to the uh, Santa Fe Opera.
1: One of the main things I think that the movie brought home and that the work you and Julie did brought home was the fact that she was important for legal justice, especially for women before she became Supreme Court justice. And can you tell us a bit about that part of her life?
2: Well, absolutely. Had uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg not been named to the Supreme Court, she had already won a place in history for what she did for, to win equal rights for American women. In the 1970s, she argued a series of cases before the U.S. Supreme Court that really challenged the kind of discrimination that was baked into our laws and our society and that everybody took for granted.
1: One of the things that gave her cases against gender bias, I guess, credibility with so many people and maybe with the court itself is that even though most of the bias cases, of course, were against women, she also argued for a single parent father who had been denied deductions at that time given only to single women. So her arguments were against bias across the board.
2: Absolutely. She was very strategic in the cases that she chose to bring before the court. And in arguing the case of Stephen Weisenfeld, who was a widower whose wife had died, sadly, in childbirth, and then he was unable to uh, collect Social Security benefits because they were only for widows and not for widowers, that was a pretty sympathetic case for the nine male justices who perhaps could put themselves in Stephen Weisenfeld's place. She and then litigator Ginsburg was making the argument that gender discrimination hurts everyone, men and women.
1: This was quite a journey for her. She graduated law school with honors, but a woman back at that time, even with her credentials, just couldn't get a decent job.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing to realize that here's this woman who comes out of Columbia Law School tied for first place. She's on law review. She'd earlier been at Harvard and also had been on law review. I mean, she is a stellar student. And yet she was turned down at all of the blue chip firms or many of the blue chip firms in New York. The thing that's incredible about her story is that so many women of her generation in the 650s and 60s and before that were discriminated against. But here was someone who figured out a way how to Challenge that discrimination on behalf of herself and, and, uh, everybody else.
1: What was that about her? I mean, she easily could have stayed the kindergarten teacher.
2: She was one determined cookie, <laughs> you know, she was just uh, very focused. And I think, um, that she had taken to heart the lessons that her mother had given her, uh, before her mother died when when Ruth Bader was 17 years old, that her mother had instilled in her this idea of both being independent and also not letting her anger get the best of her, to kind of move beyond her anger and to figure out a way. She was very well-educated, she loved the law, she knew she was good at it, and so she became a professor. And in becoming a professor, she really discovered her life's mission, which was to to take on uh, these these discriminatory laws.
1: There was something else back in the day, and you still hear it sometimes. But back in the day, feminists became more a part of our cultural life. One of the tropes that was you know constantly used against them was, well, they just hate men. One of the things that came out in the movie was the reality of her relationship with her husband, Martin Ginsburg, which was incredibly romantic and touching.
2: Yeah. I mean, she and Marty Ginsburg had a feminist marriage long before many other people even knew what that was. I mean, they adored each other. They had met in college uh, at at Cornell, and Ruth Bader was a very beautiful woman. She did not lack for suitors. Uh, She always would say that Marty was the first boy I went out with who cared that I had a brain. And he continued to care about that and to really make sure that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was able to live up to her potential. I mean, at the beginning of their marriage, uh, Marty was trying to make partner at a law firm, and I think uh, uh, Ruth took on more of the household jobs. But eventually, Um, As her career was taking off and she's arguing these monumental cases in the US Supreme Court, Marty took on more of the household responsibilities and he was her cheerleader all the way up until an opening came up in the 1990s on the Supreme Court and it was Marty Ginsburg who was a very well connected lawyer, made sure that his wife was at least under consideration uh, for that opening.
1: You're talking about friendships, relationships. The friendship with Antonine Scalia. These kinds of friendships with political opposites seem to be so rare. What did she say about that friendship?
2: Oh, it was genuine. I mean, I think we have a nostalgia for the guy, for for a time when something like uh, that relationship could exist. Uh, she said that uh, he that they shared an intellectual love of the law. They had been on the D.C. Circuit Court together originally, and I think that's how they first formed a bond. And uh, he was a funny guy, and she he cracked her up. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, they both loved the arts and, of course, opera. They used to go to the opera together. They once appeared in an opera together. I mean, it was, it was real. And even when they were on different, sides of arguments. I mean, Justice Scalia didn't even join her on her, probably one of her most famous decisions in the VMI case, in which it was ruled that uh, the Virginia Military Institute had to open its doors up to qualified women. And Justice Scalia did not join her in that. On the other hand, he did share with her ahead of time his dissent in the case. And she says she was grateful to him because his uh, descent getting a chance to see it ahead of time, sharpened her decision.
1: A final thing, the whole Notorious RBG thing that started with a Tumblr blog, and then after your movie it really exploded, I mean, there's uh, there's even classical albums that are totally devoted to pieces about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the song that was written for your documentary along with the documentary itself, won an Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. As somebody known as a serious legal scholar, she seemed to embrace that whole thing. She exercised with Stephen Colbert after people saw her in your film doing push-ups. She pointed out the notorious B.I.G. from whom the name was taken was also from Brooklyn.
2: She was a very serious person, and yet she really got a kick out of this whole thing. I mean, you're absolutely right that that uh, she would make jokes about Biggie and herself, have, how much they had in common, and she certainly carried an a RBG tote bag with her. Um, she did see the humor in the kind of celebration of this tiny you know, octogenarian grandmother who is, you know, being called notorious uh, RBG. She knew it was kind of funny, and yet there was something serious at the core of it. I think the reason that she did embrace it and not recoil when she first, you know, understood what was happening, because of course she did not invent all of this, it kind of grew up around her. I think her reasoning was that it was a way of um, expanding her platform and uh, her audience of people who were listening to her ideas about our democracy, about the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, about the rule of law. And here was a way to engage young people and others in these, these ideals that meant so much to her.
1: Betsy West was co-director and co-producer with Julie Cohen of the documentary RBG about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Betsy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Gil.
1: You're listening to The Life and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever, the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Four years ago, the host of CBS News Sunday Morning, Jane Pauley, got to spend two days with Ginsburg. When it is said of the justice that she had an outsized impact on the law, Pauley says that's quite literal.
3: And Ruth Bader and Ginsburg yes. is diminutive, mm-hmm. but looms large as a powerful liberal voice on the United States Supreme Court, uh, appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993. I, uh, this nominee is a person
1: of immense character.
3: At 83, Ginsburg is now the oldest sitting justice, known among fans as the notorious RBG. And, along with Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, one of three women on the bench, which strikes her as not nearly enough.
4: People ask me, when would you be satisfied with the number of women on the court? When there were nine. For most of the country's history, they were all white men.
3: In fact, the Supreme Court was a men's club for 192 years, until Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. The pinnacle of a law career,
4: you have achieved it. But I don't think it was by dint of luck. What is this, this song from My Fair Lady? A little bit of luck. I had more than a little bit of luck.
3: Two days before Ginsburg graduated in 1950, valedictorian from James Madison High School in Brooklyn, Her mother, Celia, died. Her
4: mother's influence has been enduring. She said two things. Be a lady and be independent. Be a lady meant don't give way to emotions that sap your energy, like anger. Take a deep breath and speak calmly.
3: She met Martin Ginsburg on a blind date at Cornell, graduated and married in 1954, had her first child in 55, and entered law school in 56. After two years at Harvard, Ginsburg transferred to Columbia and graduated first in her class.
4: Tied for first.
3: We'll call that first. But she didn't get a single offer from a New York law firm.
4: I had three strikes against me. One, I was Jewish. Two, I was a woman. But the killer was I was the mother of a four-year-old child. You graduated first in
3: your class. Didn't that say something about your ability to be both a mother and the best? It should have. And later, she'd have a son, James. But what if? What if you'd had that career? You and I wouldn't be talking today.
4: You're exactly right. And my dear colleague, Sandra Day O'Connor, put that very well. She said, if Ruth and I came of age at a time when there was no discrimination against women, we would be retired partners in a major law firm.
3: Instead, Ginsburg became a law professor at Rutgers University, groundbreaking in the 1960s. In the early 70s, she wrote the first Supreme Court brief on gender discrimination.
4: I called 1972 the year of the woman. In a
1: landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today
4: legalized abortion.
3: But ask her today about that historic Roe v. Wade decision, and you might be surprised.
4: Better to go step by step and have a series of decisions rather than have one decision that made every law of every state even the most liberal unconstitutional, too giant a stride. There are many people who disagree with me, who say that the backlash would have occurred in any event, and we will never know.
3: She has had health issues. In 1999, she battled colorectal cancer, then pancreatic cancer a decade later she
4: never missed a day on the bench. Justice O'Connor has set the model. She was on the bench nine days after her surgery. She said, now Ruth, have your chemotherapy on a Friday. That way you have the weekend to get over it.
3: And get this, Ginsburg does 20 push-ups a day. How much sleep do you get?
4: That depends on." The- this season I get very little sleep when the court is sitting I stay up as long as is necessary for me to feel comfortable that I have a solid grasp on the case so I can get by to not more than four hours
3: she's famously oh, a workaholic and says she loves the court
4: today. most collegial place I've ever worked
3: the court lost one of its most conservative voices the brilliant and bombastic Antonin Scalia and Ginsburg lost one of her closest friends.
4: Even when we were on opposite sides, he might call me and say, Ruth, I'm not with you, but wouldn't this be a better word than the one that I had? He would help you strengthen your own art? And I I did the same thing with him. The best
3: of buddies, they traveled and celebrated New Year's Eve together.
1: We are different.
3: And their mutual passion for the opera, inspired an opera written about them. Last Monday, the first Monday in October, court was back in session. Though many of her most ardent admirers may argue it's time to step down.
4: I don't think that a justice should have uppermost in her mind. A democratic president appointed me, so I must leave to be sure that another democratic president can appoint my successor. I will do this job as long as I feel that I can do it full steam. At my age, you have to take it year by year. So this year, I know I'm fine. What will be next year or the next year, I can't predict.
1: Which brings us to where we are today. More on that just ahead. You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever, the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to The Life and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg is chosen, let's talk more about Ginsburg, the process, and more. Thane Rosenbaum is a novelist, essayist, law professor, and an author, including his latest, Saving Free Speech from Itself, and a legal analyst for CBS News Radio. Thane, good to have you with us. How are you?
5: Thank you so much, Gil. So
1: let's ask the basic question first and get it out of the way, Is what the Republicans are doing in hurrying up here to get a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg legal? And the other question is, should they do it? Uh,
5: Well, Gil, I mean, it's certainly legal. I mean, it's remember when it comes to this process, it's really about Senate procedures, it's not really about the Constitution. Uh, The founding fathers in the Constitution didn't have an opinion about how many justices we would have or how they actually got appointed, nominated, and then affirmed. They just simply said, in Article Two, it's the president's job to uh, appoint someone, and the Senate plays a role again, always as in Vice Vice and Consent, to ultimately consent to to actually do the nomination. How they go about doing it, I think the founding fathers didn't really care. Uh, unfortunately, what the founding fathers set up, Gil, is a political process. So when people say this is, you know, these little machinations are politicizing the Supreme Court. I mean, that's true, but not true. It's the Founding Fathers set us up for this. Uh, if They did not decide how Supreme Court justices get appointed based on grade point averages you know, or regional differences. They said flat out the president, who is an elected official, appoints, and the Senate, who are elected officials, affirms. And so it's all legal. Uh, the question is, you know, is there hypocrisy in this? And is it rushing the job?
1: When it comes down this close to an election, of course, people are talking about politics and you talk about the founding fathers really didn't take any of this into account. And, of course, when the founding fathers put together the Constitution, we did not even have political parties quite as we know them now. So we get into situations such as when the Supreme Court decided Bush v. Gore, and even though recounts later showed George Bush actually did beat Al Gore in Florida by a few hundred votes, that court decision, seemingly along political lines, left many Americans with belief that the election was stolen. And many Americans, because of that and other reasons, believe that the Supreme Court is now a completely politicized organization. Is is this bad for the Supreme Court generally to be this politicized, or is this something that we just have to live with?
5: I think it is something we have to live with, Gil. Uh, I'm taking in your question because it's a good one. Uh, I, have a, I think I have a few responses. Um, uh, you know, again, uh, although there were not political parties, uh, President Washington was voted into office, not in a general election, but there was an electoral college, as you know, uh, built into this process. Uh, There was an understanding. Remember, the Supreme Court is the one branch in government, the least democratic branch in government. Uh, The other two, the executive and the legislative branches, uh, are all based on democracy, all based on voting. The public gets to make the decision. Uh, Here, it's an appointment by elected officials, and it's a lifetime appointment, so you can't get voted out of office if you're a Supreme Court justice. Justice. So it is, again, it's, it's, it's politicized at its inception. And as President Obama used to say, elections have consequences. And one of the consequences here is if you lose the election, you become vulnerable to the fact that the, uh, the ideology of the president uh, and the Senate that's in power at the time that there's a Supreme Court vacancy will direct and guide their choice. This has always been true. This nonsense of, you know, judges are completely neutral. <laughs> no judge is completely neutral. We keep talking about that, you know, judicial uh, independence, not judicial activism. But, you know, they all come with certain predis- predispositions. The very fact that we continue to have five to, four, five to four decisions, you know, this is a parlance skill that we've only now become used to, five to four. You know, uh, this is a new concept that used to be nine to zero, Gil. (laughs) That's when the public will look at the Supreme Court with the greatest level of legitimacy, because then it says, oh, I see everyone understands what the law is. Every time it's five to four, it's essentially telling you that but for this one vote, it could have gone in the other direction altogether. Well, then how secure should Americans feel that we understand what the Constitution means if we have all these five to four decisions? And I'm sure, Gil, if you interview Justice Roberts, he would say, This is very unfortunate thing. Rosenbaum is right. It would be so much better if it was 9-0 or 8-1. to
1: Let's wrap up by circling back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what may be before us. One of the fears of Democrats, of course, is that, again, going back to Bush v. Gore, that there may be court decisions about the validity of the elections that we're about to have, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg might have ruled in a way that was more favorable to Democrats and that her replacement might rule in a way more favorable to Republicans. I know you talked with Justice Breyer who opposed the Bush v. Gore decision, what did he say about it?
5: Well, by the way, so did Justice Ginsburg. Look, you know, the the real key there is, you know, the Florida recount, right? And the question that you've been raising throughout this interview is the legitimacy of the court and the public's perception of that legitimacy. Uh, The more the public sees this as politicized, the less faith they have that the law is a, a some certainty based on constitutional principles. So you can understand there, if in fact, the appointments to the court are dependent entirely on who becomes president, the legitimacy of the presidential election will ultimately have bearing on the Supreme Court, because that's how you get on the Supreme Court. So you can see how Justice Breyer and the other dissenters in Bush v. Gore said, hey, look, unless all three branches of government are given legitimacy so that the public feels confident that, these, that the Constitution sets up the three branches in a way that's workable and functioning. Uh, we all stand together. A weakness in one of the branches affects another.
1: I think if I remember correctly, the thing that Justice Breyer told you about Bush v. Gore, even though he was on the losing side of it, was that, look, there were no riots in the street. Even though he was on the losing side, he pointed out that this is the way that a functioning democracy works. Whether, whether you win or lose in that it's not decided by uh, mobs, assassinations and, and things like that. It's decided by an orderly process in the court.
5: Well, th- yeah. The reason there's an orderly transition is because people need to feel confident in the system. Uh, the whole Black Lives Matter protests are all about some, you know, uh, a, a boiling point, a tipping point where a, a, a certain segment of America believes that there isn't racial justice for African-Americans, right? And that's where you have you know rioting in the streets. So I think you're right. I mean, uh, it's funny in that same interview that you, you, you're, you're reminding me of uh, uh, Justice Beyer famously, a liberal said that, you know, sometimes you have to bring a gun in order to restore order, um, which is also sort of fascinating because he was reminding us that, you know, in order to integrate universities in the deep South, you needed a national guard, the Supreme court decisions were not enough. Um, and that was sort of fascinating. So you're, you're reminding me of another element of that, of that in, in that interview, because to him, you know, the legitimacy is based on the fact that there's a lack of, of outrage among the public uh, that they can accept an orderly transition. Um, my concern, and I think that he would agree with this is that, that if the elections themselves appear to not be legitimate, there is no way to prevent that feeling in the other branches of the government because they're so codependent on each other.
1: Thane Rosenbaum is legal analyst for CBS Radio News. He's an author. His latest book is "Saving Free Speech from Itself," and of course, a law professor as well. And Thane, I thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to The Life and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. People lined up this week in Washington, D.C. to pay tribute to and file by the casket of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Some were those whose lives were permanently affected by her, as CBS News chief legal correspondent Jan Crawford witnessed.
6: All weekend the Supreme Court, often the site of protest, became a place of tribute. Seeing her dissent all the time and speak her own mind. And give thanks. Going into the legal
1: profession, she definitely paved the way for me. Just knowing that if she was able to do it, then we can too.
6: A true trailblazer, Justice Ginsburg made her mark on the law even before she took a seat on the Supreme Court. She graduated at the top of her class at Columbia Law School and learned firsthand about discrimination.
4: There was not a single firm in the entire city of New York that would offer me a job
6: so she leveraged the law to help level the playing field. As a lawyer for the ACLU, Ginsburg argued six gender discrimination cases before the Supreme Court. After 13 years as a federal appeals court judge, President Clinton nominated her to the high court in 1993. On Face the Nation Sunday, Clinton said Ginsburg knew how to get it done.
0: She had
1: the best judgment on when to work with others whenever she could, and when to stand up when she couldn't stand it anymore.
6: As the court's leading liberal, Ginsburg voted to protect abortion rights, restrict the death penalty, and expand women's access to education and equal pay. People ask me when would you be satisfied with the number of women on the court? When there are nine. She had a long and close friendship with a conservative icon, the late Justice Antonin Scalia.
0: Ruth is really bad, only on the knee-jerk stuff.
6: (laughs) Later in life, Ginsburg fought through multiple bouts with cancer. At her side for 56 years of marriage was her beloved husband, Marty, who died in 2010. She credited their happy marriage to a piece of advice from her mother-in-law.
4: She said, Dear, in every good marriage, it helps sometimes to be a little deaf." And I have followed that advice not only in dealing with my dear
6: spouse, but in dealing with my colleagues. But when Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke with that soft voice, we all listened. For CBS This Morning, I'm Jan Crawford.
1: There are Supreme Court justices who, by their influence, seem especially consequential for groups who had not been well represented or championed. Thurgood Marshall was such a justice for African Americans and his replacement by the also black but conservative Clarence Thomas set off controversy, and that is likely to happen again with the woman who will replace Ginsburg on the court. In the weeks ahead, perhaps the example Ginsburg set which America may need the most will be her friendship with Antonin Scalia and the ability to passionately disagree while being able to respect and even enjoy the company of one another as human beings. This has been a special edition of America Changed Forever, the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross.